The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, everyone. I'm Jeff Tom. I'm today's facilitator. I am the Vice President of the California Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss. Uh, and um, I'm going to, in a minute, I will introduce the president of our organization. But before I do that, let me just give you an idea of how we're going to present today's speakers. We will first have um, our speaker from California, Vance Taylor. He will speak, and then he will take questions. And then we will have our second speaker, Suzanne Hogan, who will do her questions after she is done. So that's the order in which we will present things today. And now, um, Frank Welty, are you on? Apparently not. Well, we'll get back to Frank later. Um, I want to give a shout out, and he is on um, here, to... Frank, Frank uh, does have his hold. hand up, and he's still in the audience, it looks like. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought we had tried to promote over. him. Yeah, yeah, let's bring him over for a second. But okay. while I, while we're doing that, I want to give a shout out to uh, Bob Acosta, who is also on the board of the uh, California Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss. And he is uh, responsible for um, helping to put this program together and for getting one of our speakers today. So, Bob, thank you very much for all of your efforts. Thank you, Jeff. And do we have Frank? Frank Wilt has joined the meeting. Yeah, see if he's there. Let me come in here. He's here. He's just still muted. I'm here now. Okay. okay. Floor is yours. Had a few technical glitches there. This is Frank Welty, and I am the president of the California Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss, which is the group that is presenting this important seminar this evening, this afternoon. Welcome, everybody, and I hope more join us shortly. This is an important topic. And CAAVL is an important organization. We are an affiliate of the Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss, which is an affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. CAAVL and AAVL exist to create a caring and supportive community for particularly for older adults who have blindness or vision loss. We also are advocating strongly to improve the quality and amount of services and supports for people who are older with living with vision loss, because currently in our country, there is a severe shortage of availability of funding and services for this population. So we welcome you this evening. We hope that if these are issues that you care about, that you will consider joining either AAVL or if you're in California, CAAVL. If you are an AAVL member in another state that does not yet have an affiliate, we encourage you to join together with other people in your state to create a state affiliate because much of the great work we need to do needs to happen in each of our individual states and you can be a part of that. And we can give you more information about that. Having said that, I will turn the floor back over to Jeff and to our panelists. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Frank, for all the work that you do. 
So let me introduce um, our first speaker. Uh, we're going to get right to it here. This is a very important topic, emergency preparedness. Vance Taylor is the chief of the uh, Office of Access and Functional Needs in the California Office of Emergency Services. Vance has a great deal of experience in this field. He is uh, not only known around the state of California for his work, but nationally as well. And perhaps of greatest importance, Vance is a person with a significant disability. He has the lived experience to relate to all of us and the concerns that we have. And I know Vance well, and I'm sure that you will enjoy what he has to say. Um, so Vance, uh, with that, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you think um, are the best ways that we can learn about our local emergency disaster preparedness agencies and programs? Thanks very much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Um, for the recording purposes, do you want the cameras to be on or off, or how would you like us to do that? We're not using the camera, so you don't have to worry about it. Okay, fantastic. Um, well, yeah, thanks for uh, asking me to participate today, and thank you very much for uh, the the message of preparedness you're promoting and that's going out there nationally. This is such a important topic, particularly as uh, an individual with a disability. I can tell you, not just from my own uh, lived experience, but, but my professional experience as well, that this is a, a topic that continues to present unique challenges and barriers and the only way to get around those of course is to have the type of conversations that we're engaging in today so let me just start by taking a, a little step back here and looking sort of big picture uh, what we have found is that anytime there is a disaster individuals with what we refer to as access for functional needs, uh, which includes individuals with physical, developmental, and intellectual disabilities, uh, as well as other uh, populations, but, but that those individuals are impacted in a disproportionate way. And Hurricane Katrina really put a very bright light on that. It was during Hurricane Katrina that nationally and really worldwide, uh, we saw as 70% of everyone who perished in that disaster had an access or a functional need. And in the aftermath, these difficult questions about you know, why was there such a disproportionate impact had to be asked and answered. And one of the things that came back was that the individuals who were very well-intentioned, uh, but the individuals who were making the plans, determining how we were going to prepare, respond, and recover from disasters, had a very limited perspective. So they came at it from the perspective of former first responders, former law enforcement, um, 
you know, salt of the earth people, but not as individuals with lived experience with an access or functional need. And because of that, they built and designed systems unintentionally uh, that didn't have or that had huge gaps, fundamental gaps. And those gaps ultimately resulted or were measured in uh, increased human suffering and lives lost. And so when I talk about limited perspective, I like to give the example about myself. I use a power wheelchair uh, for most of my life. When I enter a room, I'm typically scanning that room uh, for access. Right. Are there going to be things that are going to impede my path of travel? Are there stairs? Is there a ramp? I do that almost at a subconscious level. But if somebody without a disability walks into that room, chances are they're not coming at it from that perspective. They're not thinking about access. And it's not good or bad. It just means that based on our individual lived experience, we have a different perspective. So the thinking in emergency management before was, hey, if you want to get emergency information out to folks, do it uh, through a press conference. But because of this lack of perspective, nobody thought, hey, that message is going to fall on deaf ears. And so there were no ASL interpreters. Nobody thought to consider that when you point to an evacuation map and say, go here for safety, that people who are, are blind or have low vision can't process that. It, gets, it doesn't mean anything to them. And so they don't know where to go. And they don't know what to do. And that, of course, places them at greater risk. Um, we saw on the evacuation side that they said, okay, we're going to evacuate everybody with school buses. And that's great until you roll up in a, a wheelchair and ask, where's the lift? And then you have to make that terrible decision about, mm -hmm. do I leave my wheelchair behind? Mm -hmm. Knowing that when I get on that bus and go wherever it is we're going, that I'm not going to have my legs? Or do I stay in the impact area, remain in my wheelchair, and just pray that it's going to be okay? Mm. On the sheltering side, we saw the same issue. There were shelters on the second floor of inaccessible buildings. There were shelters where people could get in, but there was no programmatic accessibility, meaning if you needed things in Braille, you couldn't get it. If you needed assistance with feeding, there was nobody there for that. If you had to have help with things like toileting or transferring in and out of a cot, that assistance wasn't available. And so survivors went to those shelters and those with access and functional needs languished. And so recognizing that this wasn't 
just an isolated case. But that, in fact, this happened every time there was a disaster. What we uh, saw, right, whether it was a, a big disaster or small disaster, but there was always uh, this disproportionate impact. California decided to try and get ahead of the issue. And so what they did is the governor created the Office of Access and Functional Needs and placed it within his Office of Emergency Services. So as chief, I serve as a senior-level executive appointed by the governor to brief him and the director on these issues. The office has a two-fold mission. The first part is to identify what are the needs that all Californians have before, during, and after disaster. And then the second part is to, in partnership with the community, to integrate those needs throughout every facet of the emergency management process. So it's a real uh, honor and real privilege to be able to uplead that mission. Now, when we're talking about things like these large-scale plans, I want you to understand that in the California perspective, it's all about inclusion and integration, which means that when we come up with things like a state emergency plan or a hazard, state hazard mitigation plan or any of these other plans for floods or earthquakes or any other disaster, that those plans are being vetted and developed in cooperation and partnership with stakeholders from the Access and Functions community. So Jeff, for example, uh, is part of the team that helps us review local, uh, countywide uh, emergency operation plans. Uh, also, Jeff participates with us on our California statewide uh, AFN advisory committee. And the idea here is that we can't fall into that thing where we're planning for people, right? We have to plan with people. It's very much, you know, nothing uh, for us without us, right? Nothing about us without us. Uh, and it's a partnership. Now, when I look at the issue of preparedness, there's a lot that government can and should do. And our partners help us stretch in a really good way. There is, however, also the other side of that coin, which is the personal preparedness side, right? That there's an understanding that no matter what county or jurisdiction you're in, what state you reside in, anywhere in the country, that government can't do all things for all people all the time. That we have to find a way to do as much as we can for ourselves, recognizing that we each have a different capability and capacity to do that, but whatever we can do, we should. 
And there's some really, I think, fundamental things that we could do on that front that we often don't do for ourselves. The first one is get emergency alerts. It's interesting because as technology has evolved, we tend to get much more advanced notice about a lot of disasters than at any other point in time. So in California, we just went through a month where we had nine atmospheric rivers in, I think, about three weeks. But none of those were sprung on us. We knew because technology was able to see these storms coming together. And yet we found that many Californians were uninformed because they hadn't signed up for any emergency alert notifications. You can go to your local news. You can go to national news. You can go through California to calalerts.org and sign up for all kinds of free notifications. So when it comes to emergency alerts, I always say you, you can't be notified enough, right? You can't get enough uh, alerts and information about what's happening and what steps you should take to prepare for whatever that event is. The second thing that we promote is for individuals to make a personal evacuation plan. I can tell you right now that there's not a single county, probably anywhere in the country, that can tell you exactly how many people are going to require assistance evacuating for a given disaster. And if they can't tell you how many people are going to need that assistance, especially when you're talking about things like paratransit, then how can they be prepared to meet the need? Right? So what that essentially means is we have to figure out a way to evacuate. So if you know a paratransit provider, if you know a private provider, if you know uh, you know other means to secure transportation, which you use to get to your job, you use to get to the movies, you use to live your life. These same tools and resources are going to be what you use to save yourself during an evacuation because of a disaster, right? But a big piece is to include your support network. We tell people to, to go four or five people deep. Right. So I think of five people. I think, okay, well, uh, I don't drive. Right. But my wife does and she likes me. So I'm going to put her as number one on my list. <laughs> uh, I, I've got a, a neighbor. Uh, I've got a friend at work. I've got a, a colleague uh, from another office. My mom lives in the town next door. Uh, she and I had nine good months together in the womb. I'm pretty sure she'd help if I called. So, you know, I've got I've got five people that I've talked to and said, hey, if I needed to evacuate, I might need to call you. Here's the type of assistance I would require. And 
they know. Now, can I expect that any one of those five people are going to be available at any point in time? No, that's not realistic. But the hope is that at least one of those five would be available. So you make an evacuation plan, and that needs to include things like, what am I going to take with me? So I know that whenever I travel, especially if I'm going on a plane, I get that nagging feeling at the airport. Mm -hmm. What did I forget? Right? I know I forgot something. What was it? Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife said, look, just make a list. And so that's what we do. Now we make a list. We tape it to the door. And on our way out, we make sure we check all the boxes. And, you know, that makes sense, right? Because in the stress and hustle and bustle, you can't be expected to remember everything at the same time. Well, if I were to say, get out of your house right now, right? Your life's in danger. Move. Think about the stress and the, the hustle and bustle and everything that's going to go through your mind. It's not realistic to think or expect that you're going to remember the things you need. I go to shelters and I hear things like, I need my heart medicine. Mm -hmm. Right? I go to shelters. And by the way, the number one request that we receive at shelters is wheelchair chargers. People don't think to take their wheelchair chargers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, CPAP machines, BiPAP machines, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all these devices and assistive technologies that we rely on, sometimes in the moment, we're not going to remember. So part of our evacuation plan has to include that list. Hmm. The other thing that we have to prepare for is loss of power. In California, uh, the utilities uh, participate in what's called public safety power shutoff events, PSPS hmm. events. That's where they say, hey, look, it's very dry, it's hot, and there's a lot of wind. So they're worried that something's going to run into a power line or blow into a power line, and it's going to cause a spark and then a big wildfire. And so to remove the risk of wildfire, they proactively de-energize those lines. Now, in theory, that sounds Okay, maybe this is a great idea. Um, but for people to rely on power, let's say for screen readers, for example, um, that's a problem, right? For people who rely on power for ventilators, that's a problem, right? Essentially, what's happening is that risk is being shifted from I might be impacted by a wildfire to I'm impacted now by a loss of power. Mm 
And so we have to look at what are we going to do if the lights go out? And that's where we get into things like, do I keep my devices charged? Do I have backup batteries? Do I have a generator? Can I safely operate that generator? Do I have, you know, other resources that that may be available? Like in California, there's through the California Foundation of Independent Living Centers, a, a program called the DDAR program, uh, Disability Disaster uh, and Resources. And you can go to DDAR.org. And it will tell you if you're eligible to benefit from some of the the resources that they've got there to help people prepare and be safe during power outages. That, by the way, is going to help you. Whether you're impacted by a PSPS event or whether it's loss of power because of a a storm, right? So, you know, get emergency alerts. You need to know what's going on. You got to know what to do in order to make the right decisions. You need reliable information. Uh, Make an evacuation plan. Go five people deep, make a contact list, put that list of all the things you're going to need to take with you, prepare for loss of power, uh, you know, make sure that, you know, which devices rely on power, do you have backup battery, keep charges, to, uh, keep your devices charged, and look at things like the Disability Disaster Access and Resources Program. Uh, these are all things that you can do to advance your personal preparedness. What I would say is important as well is the fact that we have to recognize our personal role in this, not just as individuals who are potentially impacted by disaster, but as individuals who can help others prepare to be safe, secure, healthy, and independent during disasters, right? I think about, um, I've got kids and our kids. First one, my wife was in labor for 23 and a half hours, which I'm a little embarrassed to say, I didn't know was possible. Uh, you know, I grew up, it was like, First it was Cosby Show, then ER, then it was you know, all these medical shows, right? That Grey's Anatomy, Dr. McDreamy could could deliver a baby in uh, under an hour with commercial breaks. So 23 and a half hours later, like, what's going on here? Um, when our second daughter was born, we thought, look, we'll stay at the house. We'll wait until the contractions are really close together. And then we'll go to the hospital. That way we don't have to be there as long. And it, it made sense. And we had a plan. And we were ready. And the contractions were 10 minutes apart. And we waited. Seven minutes, five minutes. And we waited. And three minutes, my wife said, we got to go. So we get in the car. 
a friend driving our van were on the highway and suddenly we get stuck in traffic because we lived in dc and it was eight in the morning on a thursday what do you think rush hour traffic looked like there's a parking lot and the reality is i could have gotten out of the van set my wife on my lap and driven her in my wheelchair and gotten there faster than the, <laughs> the route we were going and so my wife looks at me and says I'm going to have this baby in the van. And I, I don't know why. My first thought was, I don't want to be that guy. Right? I don't want to be that guy. We see on the news. It's like, so you delivered a baby. And how did you do it? And he said something like, the adrenaline kicked in. I grabbed a shoelace and we made it happen. I'm not that guy. I'm not built that way. So I looked around. I saw amazingly there was a, an officer next to us. I rolled down the window. I explained in a very eloquent way what was going on. I think I said, hail. I think that's what I said. <laughs> um, and he asked if I wanted a police escort to the hospital. We said yes. And his reply was, I quote, now, we don't really do that. And he rolled his window up. And our hearts sank. And my wife's getting emotional. I'm getting emotional. And I think our desperation oozed out of our van and into his police squad car. Because a few minutes later, he rolled his window back down. And said, okay, I'm going to turn on my lights, stay on my tail. We'll get you there. And the next thing I knew, we were bombing our way through downtown D.C. traffic. Which is a side note, I will say, if you ever get the chance to get a police escort, do it. It's amazing. And I told my wife, it's exhilarating. Thank you for this opportunity. She was not as excited at the time. Uh, we got to the hospital. The officer took off. I don't know his name. I didn't get to shake his hand. I didn't even get to say thank you. He left. We went into the hospital, and moments later, our second daughter was born. And every year on her birthday, she makes the same request. Tell me the story. And every year on her birthday, I do. And this last year, she turned 15. And I'm telling the story, and I found myself getting emotional because I thought, here I am staring at this smart, capable, talented, beautiful young lady. And I thought to myself, what tale would I tell? Had it not been for the right person at the right time in our lives when we needed them the most. So I share that with you because I need you to understand that by virtue of 
who you are and the circles of influence that you are you operate in and the fact that you're getting this information today you have a responsibility to share it with others to make sure that they know how to be prepared to make sure that when disasters strike they will be empowered to have more successful outcomes and when that happens in that way you will literally be the right person at the right time in their lives when it matters most. So I want to thank you for playing that role. Thank you for letting me participate today. Uh, I'll turn it back over to Jeff. If there's questions, I'm happy to answer them. Wow, that's very powerful. Thank you, Vance. Um, do we have any raised hands? Vance has a little bit of time for uh, a few questions, and I suspect we'll have some. We have three raised hands at the moment. Okay, it's up to you, Dan. And the first is Charlene Ornella. Ornelas, yes. Um, first part is a a, com a comment in talking about um, evacuating people um, that cannot use regular um, transportation. In San Diego County, they have it set up now so that as soon as you know, they hit the emergency um, evacuation notice it goes out to all of the agencies and paratransit in the area that they're in need of vehicles tells them where to go and they coordinate to go in and they ask the people um, who need you know assistance or may need assistance that they register with emergency preparedness i've double checked this is currently still in in place and i will double check to find out exactly what individuals have to do to get on that list um so that was my my big thing about um that i wanted to share is in san diego county um we have it set up already they they have a master so they they hit a send out as soon as emergency preparedness sends the message out it goes out to get vehicles with lifts and access thank you Thank you, Charlene. I, I challenge each and every one of you, whatever, wherever you live around this country, to find out from your local jurisdiction about the uh, planning process and procedures that are in place. Um, I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be this guy that, that isn't all involved in these things, but I don't know. And, and in fact, I'm going to find out in the next couple of months because I I'm on an advisory council to do this, and I purposely have it on their agenda. I'm going to find out my paratransit provider's uh, role in the disaster plan for my county. And, and you need to do the same thing. Uh, yes. Um, we have a phone number, area code 951 Ending in three four two should be able to unmute. Okay, hi. This is Nancy. I'm in Riverside, California, and I, you know, I don't know about our paratransit. I'm going to look into that. But 
is there any way, and, and my neighbors live pretty far away and things like that. Now, is there any way, is there a website to look at, but also, well, you're giving some good pointers, but also, is there a way to, to contact the police department or the fire department, or are they going to be, first responders going to be willing to help? Thank you. In case all else fails. Thank you. Turns out, I so I got the, I got um, the did last. Did you understand I my question? The, I hope. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, go on. I got the, I got the last half, not the first half. The last half was about first responders. What I can say is, you got to remember that there's a very few number of first responders per the number of individuals in any given jurisdiction. So they're going to do everything they can, without a doubt. But we have to be prepared to do the most we can. Ideally, you got to be prepared to be on your own for a couple of days. Um, does that mean that they're not going to come? It's not what that means. It just means that they're going to be absolutely overwhelmed, mm -hmm. uh, especially depending on the scope and scale of the disaster. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But I just thought maybe there's another way. Is there a website to look into? Well, like I'm going to have to check into these things you mentioned. Thank you. I guess I don't know what else to do. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, um, that Jeff made a great point, right? Find out. Hey, who are, who are my local providers? Okay, we have who another raised resources. We have another raised hand. Um, the phone number is 970 area code ending in 874. And you can go ahead. Hi, this is Catherine Johnson, and I'm in Fort Collins, Colorado. We have a lot of floods and fires, and we had the most recent fire in uh, Boulder, Colorado, Superior, Colorado, um, a year ago. Um, how can somebody that is visually impaired um, get more training and also volunteer their services for uh, help during a disaster such as a flood or fire? Thank you. It's a great question. And in Colorado, you're fortunate because you've got Sadie Martinez and her team uh, over there with the state that work on these issues. Uh, when it comes to training and participating in that way, there are these things called CERT teams, C-E-R-E-T, Community Emergency Response Teams. Yes. Uh, and that's a great way to not only get training, but to be a part of the response process. And uh, we just did a training with CERT at the National Conference that talked about not just providing training that addressed access and functional needs, but about the benefits of having people with access and functional needs on CERT teams and leading CERT teams. So, that's where I would go for that. Okay. Um, should I contact um, fire or police for that? Thank you. So you can just Google search uh, and you can find your local cert team information. Okay. Um, do, we, you, do we have anyone in Clubhouse, Jane?
I guess not. Okay. Um, next we have. Next we have. Um, hmm, Christy Crespin. Hey there, Christy. Hello. So, um, could I have you repeat that? Um, where the ad web address where we sign up because I wasn't ready to take notes at that time. Where you sign up for alerts? Yeah. yeah if, if you're in California, are you in California? Yes, I'm in Highland, California. Fantastic. It's Cal Alerts. That's C A L A L E R T S. Uh huh. Dot org. Uh, okay. O R G. Okay. And you can sign up for free emergency alerts. Good. And then are there any other uh, web addresses or, uh, you know, think places like that? Um, I, I think Nancy was asking for, like, if there's any other um, address, email, email addresses that we need or websites, uh, especially in California, that will um, allow us to. Um, access more information yeah if you go to the cal oes website uh you'll find it's caloes.gov i'm sorry cal cal oes cal oes dot gov so cal oes dot cov is a former state employee you'll find it i know you will C A L O E S dot gov. G O V, yeah. And um okay. and they got a ton of uh, lists and resources on there. And you can all always uh, Google your local emergency management uh, as well, and that'll come up as well. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Christy. Okay, next is Marilee Richards. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah, um, I've done several trainings on on um, being prepared for emergencies, and the more I listen, the more I know I don't. Uh, the the more I know I don't know. So um, you were talking about transportation. Is there do most um, uh, local transportation companies have a have a plan for taking people that need to be taken away from a certain place in an emergency? You know, there's a lot of disparity there. Okay. So, so you've got the San Diego's, which was just mentioned, where they've got. I'm in Washington State, so. Well, it, and even with it, well, I'm saying even within California, we've got 58 different counties. Okay. 58 different ways of doing it. Some of them are great. Others are still working on it. And in Washington State, it's going to be the same thing. So it'd be good but, to look into it. Yeah, and and that's the thing. It's going to, it's going to take a, you know a little bit of effort to kind of figure out. Okay. Again, if you're using those systems already. Okay. Then, I'm in the program, but I don't. Oh, great. I, this, yeah, this is the first I've heard about them offering to get you if you have to get away from someplace. Um, because I don't obviously don't drive, but and then I have a second question: How much pre -pre preparation should you do? Is there 
the more the better or can you do too much well like, I, you know I, I don't advise anybody to build a bunker or anything like that but I, I do think you know there are certain steps that we can take and and what's great is when we look at things like sign up for alerts or make an evacuation plan or prepare for loss of power that that doesn't cost money it takes a little bit of time it doesn't cost any money right um and then when you think about things like hey look if i were to to hunker down in place right if, if i had a shelter in place food you know supplies resources that sort of thing um i wouldn't say go buy all of that today but i would say if there are things that you need to buy even if it's things like backup batteries Right. I, I have a good plan for a, water, but that's as far as I've gotten. So. Yeah, and, and the rest, just pick it up a piece at a time. You know, look, when you do your grocery shopping, uh-huh. pick, up, pick up a couple extra cans or whatever. Okay. Right? Now, over the course of the next couple months or year, what you'll find is that having picked up a little bit of this and a little bit of that will actually give you a, a, a pretty good amount of stuff so you can be well well taken care of for quite some time more long longer than we might think right always good to be ready right thank you sir thank you Mm -hmm. so before we lose vance here um i want to know is can sheila gun cushman are you on to raise? can you raise your hand she has something to which Vance actually alluded to. And I yeah, she has her hand raised. Okay, can you recognize her? I, I okay. Normally I wouldn't, but she has some specific information with regard to California, so it might be worthwhile hearing. I can go Jeff, here I am. Um, I'm Sheila Gunn-Cushman, and I work, just started, with the Center for Independent Living in Berkeley, And we are one of the centers around California, the independent living centers that are a part of the DDAR program that Vance spoke about. Um, We also are a part of LISTOS, which is a Cal OES grant that expands our abilities. And we can help people in our catchment areas with individualized emergency plans. And we have an, we have a community emergency response plan that we are supposed to develop and i'm two weeks into the job so i (laughs) i'm just barely getting on boarded um so we're doing that but i also had um two questions that may not be able to be answered right now but i would sure like them answered uh in the community as soon as possible one is i am totally blind have been all my life and I do everything electronically. I don't do things in print. And all the places that talk about what you should do for emergencies tells you to do this in print and that in print and have this on a card and have this over here. The one thing that I heard was take pictures of important documents and put them on your phone. Now, yes, a phone needs power. I know that. But that's a lot more practicable for me because I need help to do it. But once it's done, it's on my phone and I have my phone always. And I don't have to worry about it. But I, um, it brought up another question for me, which is all these documents that we're supposed to have about if something happens to us and we can't speak, what do we do? Everybody talks about doing them in print, and I can't do that. This, and 
The second question is Everbridge is where all the emergency alerts seem to live and they're inaccessible. The sign up is inaccessible on Everbridge. What can we do about those sorts of things? Oh, that's great. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks for everything you do. I have a good opportunity to. So I've been able to interact with Sheila for a long time. So, uh, great questions. Look, uh, first off, let me start with Everbridge. I think we got to notify Everbridge. Also, Sheila, if you want to send me a note about that, I'm happy to send it over to them as well. I'm on it. Um, state, uh, in terms of California, we've moved away from Everbridge. So, the providers we use are accessible. Uh, both in terms of signing up and also in terms of alerting. Good. Um, and then tell me the, the first part again, the first question. Documents in documents, documents yeah. that everybody I, I think, thinks has to be legally in print. What, how can we make sure that we can do them electronically so that we yeah, can? Yeah, no, pho photos are great. I mean, photos are great. And and, and that's, you got to remember that. Um, but like advanced you know, directives and stuff, how do we make them? How do we make them in electronics and still make them legal? Well, and look, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to give legal advice. What I will right, say. no. But what I will say is that I do a lot of legal documents on PDF. Uh, I sign a lot of PDFs that, as legal documents as well. So I, I would think that that would be a, a good route, but I'm definitely not going to give law advice. I will say in terms of just being able to communicate needs and being able to uh, keep track of things, photos are fantastic. That's a start. All Thanks. right, thank you very much, Sheila. Let's see, we have one time for one more and then we, you know, we're gonna move on here. Yes, we have um, Nicolette Noyes. Okay, Nikki. Hey, thank you. Um, about 20 years ago, when Anita, I believe her last name was Schroeder, was the CEO of the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco, we had an on or an in-person emergency preparedness program one day. And we learned all kinds of things. And we even got hard hats, um, how to deal with earthquakes, put your hard hat on, keep it close by. But basically, what they said at that time, and I think it's still important to register with your local police station and your local fire department, because if they know what your situation is, even if they can't get help to you, they will get help to you as soon as possible. Uh, one of the problems is a lot of times they don't know. Uh, people haven't registered. So I think that that's really important. Um, and one of the things that when you're thinking in terms of water, you don't want to keep it more than six months because it won't do you any good. So kind of recycle it, you know, have, have enough water on hand, but then recycle it as you go. Um, the, let's see, also keep, keep food in your house, either cans, because they're safer now, or freeze-dried stuff that you can eat cold in case you don't have gas and you don't have electricity. But I got a couple of lanterns from uh, Costco a couple of years ago, and they came in very handy during the storms because we lost our power at one point. 
but they have these little USB or whatever you call these things, these little ports that you can charge your phone on. You can charge all kinds of things. So if you have enough batteries and you have several of these lanterns, you'll never have to worry about not having a phone that's charged or other electronic equipment that's charged. So um, that's my contribution. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Nikki. I want um, to really, I, Oh, go ahead, Vince. I'm sorry. I just want to say really quick. So about the disaster registry, I just want to be really clear about that. So that the guidance, there's been a, a shift and I think it's just to clarify uh, the official guidance that, that Cal OES puts out is that disaster registries typically do not work. That for some jurisdictions, it may be a helpful tool, but that oftentimes they give people a false sense of confidence that I'm on a list, they're coming for me, it's going to be fine, I can check the preparedness box. What I'm saying isn't, hey, if you're on a list, they're definitely not going to work. What I am saying is absolutely 100% plan as though no one is coming for you. If they do, fantastic. But just planning on somebody coming for you is, is not going to be enough. Um, and so while it's kind of a scary topic, uh, or certainly can be, I feel like when we talk about these these uh, things that we can do, it it really is very doable. And you know, I, I look at the, the resilience that I see throughout the disability community, and we're pretty used to taking good care of ourselves because we have to, right? Some people call it a disaster. Sometimes we call it a Tuesday. Um, so keep, keep doing what you're doing and then integrate these, uh, these other tools and, and, then that'll help get you there. Sorry, Jeff. Thank you so much fans for, you know, taking the time out of your Saturday to give us all this important information. Um, very, very powerful and informative. So we appreciate your time and, and thanks again for being on our show today. Now, let me turn it over to uh, Suzanne Hogan. Suzanne is a regional representative in Southern California for the uh, Helen Keller National Center uh, for uh, deafblind, I mean, for, for uh, deaf, deafblind youth and adults. I think I've, I'm saying it right, probably not. But Helen Keller Center is an amazing institution and uh, Suzanne is going to give us a lot of information on how we can begin that preparedness uh, plan of ours. So, Suzanne, the floor is yours. Um, Jeff, before we start, we still have two hands raised um, from before. Do you want me to leave them up? Uh, yeah, leave them up in case they have questions for uh, Suzanne when she finishes her. Okay, okay thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Can. Awesome. Perfect. Um, my name is Suzanne Hogan. I work for Helen Keller National Center. I've been in the field of individuals who have a combined hearing and vision loss for 19 years. So I've been around a little while. Um, there were a couple questions and some comments that I just wanted to address really quickly, especially the one about your important documentation. Um, it should be birth certificates, passports, social security cards, 
um, insurance policies, your will, your advance directive, all that stuff. And you should be able to scan it and save it onto a PD, uh, onto a flash drive is the best method. And so when you have your emergency kit or your disaster bag, you keep it in, you should actually should have one for both bags. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and you keep those and you save all that documentation because if you're in a fire or anything like that and you need to grab something quickly, you should have multiple copies of all your documentation and put it into different um, places where you can just grab it and go. Um, but I just wanted to suggest that. And you can do that simply by using your iPhone, go into the notes uh, app, you click on the, the camera, and it'll allow you to scan documents and it'll scan them just like a printer would. And then you can save them and email them to yourself and save them onto a uh, flash drive. So just wanted to give that little tidbit out there. Um, the one thing that Vance had can said multiple times, and that's actually the first bullet on my agenda for t today, is to make a plan. That's your most vital part that you need to do is to make a plan. Because it could be as simple as, you know, not simple. I'm sorry, that's the wrong word. It could be as minor as a simple cut on the hand, or it could be a major disaster. You need to know what your steps are for each individual emergency or disaster. So make a plan with your family, make a plan with your friends. You know, these are all important things to make sure that you have in place so that, you know, a lot of us, when we've uh, reached an emergency situation, we panic. Um, we forget things. We don't know what we're supposed to do. So it's important to have, you know, even practice them and get them all set up for yourself. So, you know, like when you were in school and you had to do emergency fire drills and different things like that, it's important to do that, especially, you know, when you have different types of uh, visual impairment or any other kind of um, challenge, you know. So um, one thing that we do at Helen Keller National Center with the deafblind population, and we do it with um, all different capacities, is we mark, we take our fingers and we put a giant X on somebody's back. X, the letter X. And then that signals to that person, of course, they have to be taught this, to it's basically get out now. We'll talk about it later. Just grab what you got to go do and get out the door. And then once it's safe and calm, then you can discuss and say, well, this is what's happening. So that's very important. You have to be able to not panic in that moment, get out of the house and then discuss it or get out of wherever you, whatever situation you're in and discuss it in detail later when it's safe to do so. A lot of people will be like, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And it's just not safe in some areas. So that's important to know is if somebody is, you know, saying we got to get out, don't question until you're safe. So that's a big thing. And the X on the back is great for individuals who have um, hearing loss, because a lot of times I have hearing loss. So a lot of times when you're sleeping, you may not hear the noises around you. And if somebody puts an X on your back, you know immediately it's time to get out. So that's important. 
um, there's two different types of um, things I wanted to talk about. There's a difference between an emergency and a disaster. So an emergency, we all know what that is. You know, it could be a fall, it could be a fire, it could be, you know, uh, cutting your hands. It could be any of those things. But a disaster would be considered, you know, something like an earthquake or a tsunami. And as we know, most earthquakes are centered around Southern California, unfortunately, um, where most of you guys are. I, I know there's people from other states as well, but um, so it's important to understand that distinction because, you know, you could say, oh, we have an emergency, but really it's a disaster and it's, it requires different things. So for an emer power outage, by the way, is considered a disaster because that could affect your health and everything else. So there's a couple different things that you should be doing, or at least I'm recommending you do. Okay, so there's an emergency kit you should have. And that should consist of communication cards, contact information of family or friends, um, medical information, list of medications, list of um, medical history, you know, and like um, the one woman on here said, you know, she's electronic. She does everything on the computer. She can't use paper and pen. Type it out, print it. If you can't print it, save it onto the USB and just hand it to whoever's there. A whistle is important. And people are like, a whistle? But let's say, for example, you're in a room and the house is, uh, house is on fire or whatever. If you're blowing that whistle, that alerts fire department and, and police to know where you were located. They could follow the sound of the whistle and they can find you more, you know, hopefully they can find whoever's blowing the whistle. Flashlights are important to keep around. And like um, somebody also said about the lanterns that charge uh, your iPhones or whatever, that's great. One thing that a lot of people forget about is hearing aid batteries. So this should all be in your kit, extra clothing, um, pictures and flash drive, like I was saying. One thing also that people don't un don't realize is you should always have cash on hand in a in a safe, you know, in your emergency kit. And the reason for that is if there's a let's say a citywide power outage, ATM machines won't be up. The credit card machines won't be up and if you need something, you need cash. I'm not saying to have $10,000 sitting in your in your emergency kit. But maybe a couple hundred dollars if you can, you know, put $20 a week away for now until you can get that money up to, but you should have at least some money so that you can, you know, go to the store and buy a loaf of bread or a, bottle, a gallon of milk. Um, the other thing is the disaster bag. So that is more intensive. So that's going to include your battery, your charges. So always have a second set. Um, a first aid kit, your medicines, there should be at least, at least several days worth of medicines in there. Scissors, uh, tissues, a pocket knife is important because what if you're, you need something? Um, toilet paper, you know, people don't think of toilet paper, but you know, and if you're in a disaster and you need the toilet paper, you're going to want it. Um, 
canned food, and it's important to have canned food, but the other thing is a can opener. Because if you don't have canned food, I mean, a can opener to open all that canned food, you don't have the resource you need. One good thing is peanut butter, because peanut butter provides calories and nutrients that you may need if you're not getting it from the canned food. Remember, canned food is not always, you know, it has a lot of sodium in it. It has different things. So it's important to have some type of color calories or nutrients that you may need. Milk. Canned milk, obviously not real milk. I mean, not milk in a jug, but uh, canned milk is important. Blankets, sheets, your toiletries, toilet paper, I mean, um, toothpaste, toothbrush, uh, paper and pen is important. If for some reason you wear hearing aids and you're, you really are unable to hear without them, you may need that paper and pen to write back and forth if you can't understand what's being said to you. Matches and candles in case of, you know, there's no electricity, your batteries run out. Of course, you always want to keep extra batteries for all your devices. Disposable plates and utensils are important. Um, and all, and like I was saying before about the personal docs, those should, if you're going to have paper copies of everything, they should all be in a Ziploc bag so that they don't get ruined by water or anything like that. But if not, put it in a flash drive and have that flash drive in a plastic bag so that does not get destroyed. Um, and somebody did say that you should be replacing these items every, I would say, three months for food and six months for the water. So you want to constantly check to make sure that the dates are good. And if you can't see that small print of a date, have somebody help you and you put it in large print with a Sharpie put on there the date it expires because that's important because you don't want to have bad food when you get there. Um, I do recommend notifying the police department and fire department of hearing and vision loss or physical challenges. Um, they need to know, especially if you're on oxygen, 24-7 oxygen, they need to know so that if something comes up, they can bring a generator. But even with those alerting and notifying them, you need to still be proactive and if something happens call them again and say look i'm registered with you um i don't have any electricity i'm on 24 7 oxygen i have a hearing and vision loss or a vision loss or whatever they also make certain alert systems uh, for fires and carbon monoxide and some of them have vibrations so, or flashing lights or whatever works for you best. And what I will do is I will send Robert um, or Bob the a list of resources for that. And I will send it to him and he can uh, send it all out to you guys. Um, one thing I wanted to say, if you're cane users or even guide dog users, I always recommend, I come with an O&M background. So I teach orientation and mobility is my uh, trade. I recommend no less than three canes in your home in case of an emergency. Probably four because you're gonna have two different bags. So one should be by your bed at all times. One should be by the front door or your exit door. One should be in your emergency kit and one should be in your disaster kit. 
So you always have a cane or, uh, and for guide dog users, you should always have at least two harnesses, one that's by your bed that you can uh, put the dog into the harness quickly and one by the front door. You should always have shoes by the front door in case of an emergency and maybe a jacket or a sweater or something that's going to keep you warm. It's all the little things that people don't realize that are so important that you have to do. You know, um, I always have multiple items by my door um, because if something were to happen, I just grab the bag and go, you know. Um, so these are just vital, important and vitally important things. Um, always keep your bags, your emergency kit and your disaster bag in a secure location, especially your flash drives, because those should be, you don't want them just laying around because people could find them and get your information. So you want to be very secure with that. Um, but I can't reiterate enough about having extra batteries for your devices and chargers. I know somebody else said this as well. Um, these are so important because if you don't have a phone and you're stuck in the house with no electricity, um, you will not be able to possibly get through to emergency services. The other thing is they make um, battery packs for cell phones and iPads and stuff like that, whatever you use for, even Androids have them, uh, whatever you use for uh, communication, and you can get really cheap ones for maybe $20. And I mean, they go high, way higher than that, but you don't need that. And they, you charge it when it's not a disaster, obviously. And then when, if you lose power or anything like that, you can plug your phone directly into this battery pack and it'll give you a couple charges on your phone or your iPad or whatever your devices are. So there's a lot you can do to be prepared. Um, some of the literature I've been reading about earthquakes recently are saying there there will be a big one uh, soon. Not soon, but eventually. Um, of course, they don't know exactly when, but it, it will eventually happen. So it's best that you're prepared for whatever you can do and make sure that you are as secure as possible and you have made all the right precautions and you know, you should be fine. So does anybody have any questions or comments? Hey, I know we have at least a couple hands from before if they're still up, Diane, so okay. go ahead and recognize it. Yes, the first is uh, Cheryl Goodnight. All the audio now unmuted. Yes, um, I'm from Texas, and of course, you all probably heard about our Snowmageddon in 2021. Mm -hmm. And uh, so much of what you all have talked about, I have been through. And, now lower. and uh, that doesn't mean that I know it all. I've really learned a lot of night, a lot of things uh, tonight. I'll share with you, and I have, I do have a couple of questions just to clarify. First of all, I was very fortunate to live down in four houses down from the president of the Chamber of Commerce. And he called a gentleman from the Temple Police Department. I live in Temple, which is in uh, the, deep in the heart of Texas. And uh, this nice uh, policeman uh, took me to a very dear friend's house. 
And um, these people, of course, uh, are now in their 80s. They're still doing well, but who knows what will happen, you know, um, in the future. And I did invest in a generator and we just had an ice storm in Texas. And I was told by my neighbors they could hear the generator on. Thankfully, I was asleep when our power went out last week. It was from uh, 4.30 a.m. to 8 a.m. And they said they heard it running. So when I got up, everything was fine. But I do have some friends that had a generator put in and theirs didn't work. So um, I, I was very fortunate a week ago, the generator company, Austin Generator, came up and did a six-month check and they replaced a spark plug. Mm -hmm. So also um, be sure, I think, knowing that we're in with the police department and they can take you somewhere like to a warming center or to a friend's house. And I really like the idea of at least five people, like um, the gentleman while ago spoke about because that was very, very helpful. And I uh, have some assistants that work for me and their power was out last week. So I uh, housed them and hosted them a couple of nights. And I even told some other people if they wanted to come stay, they could. I said, I'm gonna not have beds, but bring your cots, bring your sleeping bags, air mattresses, whatever, I'll be glad to have you. Okay, thank you uh, very much, Cheryl. Anyway, my question oh, your question, okay. Uh-oh, I think I muted her. Let me see if I can get her back. Um, sir, did you want me to um, try and have her come back? Yeah, why don't you get the next person and then try to get her back? If you can, okay. let's go to the next person. Okay. We don't have any more raised hands. Oh, okay. Well, let's try to get Cheryl back. Okay, Cheryl, it might be easier if you raise your hand again. There we go. There we go. You should be able to unmute Cheryl or Sharon. Okay, okay we got you. You got me? Okay, what was the name of the app that you mentioned a while ago that we could scan the documents on our phone? It's the Notes app on an iPhone. I'm not 100% sure what it would be on the, uh, the Android, but it's N-O-T-E-S, Notes. And oh. every iPhone, it's a, it's a, a standard app on every iPhone. I have that, and so what do we push on that? That's <laughs> now lowered. I'm what? sorry, I didn't mean to cough in your ear. But you go into the app itself. You, on the bottom right-hand side, there's a little square with a pen in it. That means to create a new note. You click on that, and then you there is the camera on just above the um, the, the keyboard. There's the camera button. You click on that. And then it's going to bring up a list for you to do. So the first one is choose photos or video. Second one is scan documents. Third is take photo or video. And the fourth is scan text. If you're scanning a document, obviously you're going to click on the scan document and then you hold it over like you're taking a picture of it. And it will frame it for you. It will do everything for you. 
and then there's a, a an option to save it at the end. Okay, that's that sounds great. And I know there was another question that I had, but I just I really uh, can't think of uh, what it was. But also, in my experience, uh, two years ago, not only did I have to take myself to my friend's house, I had to take my little dog with a mm-hmm. little. And I took the cage and all and her dog food and everything. Yes. If you have animals and you need to evacuate, that's important to have with your disaster kit is extra dog or cat food. Uh, The carriers never put the carriers where you can't get to them easily. Um, As we know, with California, there's a lot of fires. Um, I have three cats and my cat carriers are always within reach that I can grab them and go if I need to. Also, I figure out what my question was. What type of um, containers do you feel we should use for uh, emergency versus a disaster? I heard a lecture once where somebody said get a plastic tub. But what do you recommend? This is Suzanne. Um, For an emergency bag or kit, you can use like a duffel bag or whatever because it's not as extensive. But it's important to have. The disaster kit. Uh, disaster bag, they call it a bag, but I like to use those um, little garbage cans with the lids and the wheels on it that roll so that when you have to go, you could just push it along. Um, You can probably get like a 20 gallon garbage can and just fill it up with stuff when you need to, that you need to just get out of the house immediately. Um, But I recommend on wheels is the most important part. That's a fantastic idea. Um, again, I'm sorry, I'm not understanding your term uh, for duffel bag. Do you mean backpack or? No, no, like um, a tote bag sort of thing. Okay, that's fine. Well, Larger uh, size tote bag. You know. What I used mainly to go, go to my friends is I just filled a suitcase. Well, you can do that too. You can have a secondary suitcase. It's all your preference, whatever's easiest for you. Um, I am from New York, so I may have some New York terminology, and I apologize. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's okay. I, I learned something new. and But uh, basically, you really uh, reinforced everything. And when you said to recycle the water and the foods after three months, uh, mm-hmm. do we just throw them in our recycle bin for the uh, city to pick up and just purchase new ones? Is that what we do? I would eat it. You know, if after if you notice after two months something is going to expire in another month, eat it. <laughs> it's silly to throw out all the food, and the water can be used for up to six months. So, because what happens is with the water is that the plastic starts to break down and it gets inside the water after six months. So you want to use that water within six months. Would it be okay to like water plants with it after six months, or just oh yeah, them? absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This was such an informative class and it uh, clarified and reinforced some things that uh, I had been told before. And it's just, it was so, so thorough. Great. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. And I have any other hands up? Diane? Okay. Uh, I muted her again. Um, Andy is next. Okay. Okay. Uh, what I wanted to say is that, uh, we lived through the 1994 Northridge earthquake in the San Fernando Valley. And <clears throat> one thing that hasn't been mentioned here that we that was very important to us is, if possible, get to know your neighbors. Uh, mm-hmm. Because in our situation, we had just moved into our unit. Uh, thank God a lot of things were still in boxes. 
So we didn't have a lot of broken stuff, but like our next door neighbors, for instance, all of their crockery, their, their dishware, their glassware, whatnot was broken. Uh, they had food. They had food. Our, our stuff was just fine because it was in boxes, but we didn't have a lot of food because we had just moved in. So we, you know, we shared their food and we, you know, we ate their food on our plates and glasses and things like that. And, you know, for the first couple of days, uh, it, one thing that, that was always taught in, in any classes that I had in this subject or whatnot is that in a disaster to be prepared to be on your own for 72 hours. And in our case, it wasn't quite that long. It was a day or two, uh, but it really helped that uh, that we had our neighbors that we you know that we shared stuff and and that kind of thing. And I know that like uh, you know I live in a uh, condo complex, and uh, either my wife or I have always made sure that one of us was on the on the board of the HOA because then that way it it gave us an opportunity to to get to know people and also to find out a lot of valuable things about our complex. So my advice would be, uh, uh, if at all possible, to get to know your neighbors. Great. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, this is Suzanne. That's an awesome point, and I didn't even think of putting that down. Um, but I also, you know, I don't know if you guys remember that the the winter storm in up in the San Bernardino Mountains is where I was living when I first moved out to California in 2019 it was the thanksgiving day storm where we lost power for six days straight literally the entire neighborhood came together and we made a thanksgiving feast using a barbecue grill you know we still had gas on the on the stovetop but we had no oven we made do and we had several families come together and you know, sat in the dark, the kids enjoyed playing hide and seek in the dark, you know, different things like that. But you, ha- like he said, you have to know the neighbors because our neighbors next door didn't have, didn't prepare for Thanksgiving because they were going down the mountain. And unfortunately they got stuck on the mountain and they had no food. They had not enough food for, to last them for a couple of days. So, you know, having that good neighborhood and at least having one person in your neighborhood that you can count on is important. Okay, we still have um, we have um, well, first of all, we have about Five uh, minutes. eight minutes left. Yep. Yep, and we have a um, couple people whose hands uh, are raised, uh, I would like to call on Roberta because she hasn't spoken yet. Okay. Okay, Roberta, you can unmute. Hi. Um, I just wanted to, someone asked about food and water. And one of the things that I do is to... um, Thank you, voiceover. Um, one of the things I like to do is to, um, uh, what do I want? How do I say this? I rotate my food and water psych- in cycles. In other words, if I have 10 gallons of water every week, I cycle one gallon out. Okay. That's a great Thank idea. You. That's a great yeah. idea. I have, um, 
a certain amount of food, a certain amount of food every week or every two weeks, I cycle some of that out so that it's continuously recycling as mm-hmm. opposed to all at once, it's time to get rid of everything and replace everything. And I find that helps me a lot to not waste the food and the water. That's an excellent idea. Thank you for that suggestion. Yeah. Okay. okay. Next and the only other person who has a hand up is Cheryl. My hand. Okay, Cheryl. All you. All you. All the. Can y'all hear me? Yes. We do. Okay. Uh, I just really want to iterate what she said about the uh, neighbors. I had two neighbors that I and now lowered. I uh, kept in touch with regularly. Um, and uh, one of them uh, went and stayed at their parents' house in a nearby town. They were able to get there because the nearby town had uh, electricity. And um, but the other neighbor chose to stay at the house. And I called them regularly to check on my house uh, to see uh, how things were doing. And after I would say forty-eight hours, it came on. It came on during the snowmageddon. But then there was an ice storm and. Another friend that I had advised me to stay where I was till that uh, passed over. And uh, I was expecting to come back to my house where there was water three feet uh, deep, but fortunately everything was okay. But I did have uh, one of my employees uh, that had her whole condo flooded. So she rented an apartment for a while and then she came and stayed with me for a while. It's just that any, any of this stuff can happen. All right. Thank you very much, Cheryl. So I want to thank you, Suzanne, for all that uh, great information. Uh, I have to get my disaster kit and emergency kit going. So that is great. Yeah, it's very important. Yeah, Bob uh, Bob Acosta is on the panel, and he has his hand raised, so he should be able to unmute himself. All right, Bob, go for it. I'll do it in 30 seconds. I know that you're busy here. Suzanne, outstanding job, as as I knew you could do. Really great. My question is about guide dogs. Mm -hmm. Our families spread out 100 miles apart. Forget that. Neighbors, I agree. Whoever said that, we have great neighbors. In 94, uh, we had barbecues up and down our condominium. Everybody was friendly for a month. Then they (laughs) they separate. But what about guide dogs in shelters? That's where we may end up. I don't know. We'll register with the police. Great advice. Are, are guide dogs accepted or is it okay? Uh, what do you mean? Guide dogs have to be because it's an ADA. I know compliant. the rules, but I've heard too many stories as a guide so, dog where they won't accept the dog. They, they'll say, nope, you know. Uh, and well, I wonder- here's what I would say about that. Having mm-hmm. looked at county uh, at several county plans, mm-hmm. um, some are really clearly excellent and they talk about you know actually you know making sure that there's food and other things Mm -hmm. and some uh uh, you know have a vague mention of well we'll do whatever we're legally required to do and so i think it's important um for you know because it's not just you know your guide dog it's you know are you going to know how to you know, where to take your dog, you know, if you have him there. So if, if it's me, I think it's it's a real important element that you need to 
go to your county and find out exactly what's in the plan with respect to the housing of guide dogs because yes they're gonna do it but you know what level of service do you need and what level are they going to provide thank you I'll, I'll do research thanks jeff um all right are we out of hands we have everybody is let me check one more time okay nope no more raised hands Okay, well, I want to thank you, Suzanne, again. I want to thank all of you, our audience today. I hope this has been informative. Um, the California Association Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss uh, will be having uh, future um, community calls like this. And if you have topics that you if that you would like to see us um, address, uh, please reach out um, to one of us, and we will certainly do our best to provide it to you. So thanks again. And with that, uh, get back to your Saturday and enjoy the rest of your weekend.